We're going to find our way to 2 Timothy chapter 2 tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The life of a Christian is often referred to as our walk. Uh, Can I give you about four examples of that in the Bible? There are literally dozens, especially in the New Testament. I'm going to give you four. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Galatians 5, verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ephesians 2, you remember verses 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. And then third John verse 4, John says, and I echo this thought, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And so we've got several, uh, understand, several examples here of, of, of the life of a Christian being called his or her walk. Now the psalmist, in this case David, reminds us who should be in control of our walk. Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man. What's a good man? That's somebody who is valiant, who is morally successful. The steps of a good man are ordered. They're established by who? The Lord. And he delighteth in his way. Now, when God orders your steps... When he establishes our steps as Christians, there's really only two considerations. Now, you'll forgive me, and this is going to bother me that I'm going to end two sentences with a preposition. The the grammar Nazi in me doesn't care for that, but I'm going to do it because I have to. God orders our steps, and there's two considerations. Number one, what is he ordering you from? And what is he ordering you to? From to. That's really the only two considerations we have in our Christian walk. What are we walking from? And what are we walking to? Okay? And this doesn't matter your stage in life. I mean, I've been hammering the teens hard lately. But the truth is, it's just as true for their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles and their neighbors and their friends who are adults. The only two things that really matter are where you're headed and where you're getting away from. You know? The teenagers hear that all the time in school and in youth group and in Sunday school and all of that. But I'm telling you as adults, it matters where your steps are taking you from and what your steps are taking you towards. Now, in 2 Timothy 2, and I love 2 Timothy, I think there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, it is primarily written, though it is certainly applicable to all of us, it is primarily written to a young preacher, from an older preacher, and this is the last epistle that Paul writes before he dies. 
This reference, now I understand it's inspired, but you know that God, even in inspiration, God was, was able to use the, the personalities of the writers and the experiences of the writers to get across certain, certain ideas and themes. And so when you read 2 Timothy, you read the words of a man that knows that he is about to leave. This morning we read in 2 Peter, what did Peter say? I'm about to put off this tabernacle. I'm about to leave this place. And you, you sense a certain urgency. And in 2 Timothy, there's a certain urgency about this. Now, I don't know if we're all about to die, but I do know this. Jesus could come back at any moment. We just heard the choir sing about that. There should be a certain urgency about our walk because Jesus could come back in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He could bust this service up, and, and I'd be fine with that, and so would you. And so there's a certain urgency, and there's a certain tenderness, and there's just this relationship between Paul and Timothy, and Paul boils it down ultimately to the same two considerations, but he words it a little bit differently. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness Faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So whereas we started out talking about what we're walking from and what we're walking to, Paul puts it a little differently. He says, Timothy, it matters what you're fleeing, and it matters what you're following. So as we look at our own Christian walk, we've got to filter it through the same two considerations, fleeing and following. What are you fleeing tonight, and what are you following? So Father, would you help us tonight as we look to this passage? I pray, Lord, that I would preach and teach in the way that most pleases you, and that I'd rightly divide your word of truth. Lord, uh, I need your help tonight. And I pray, God, that you would just touch your word and bless it and apply it. And may Jesus be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's begin. What should we be fleeing? What should we be fleeing? Paul tells Timothy to flee also youthful lusts. Now, too often we glance over this and we think, oh, well, you know, the things that young people struggle with. That's not what it says. It's not something that you can outgrow. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm 48 years old, or I'm 52, or I'm 63, or whatever. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your age is. We are absolutely capable of entertaining youthful lusts. doesn't matter how old you are. We glance over this and we pass over it, but let's break down the phrase. Let's do like we're doing in our Bible class or like we're doing on Wednesday nights. Let's define our terms. First of all, the word flee. It literally means to run away or to escape danger. It's from this word that we get our English word fugitive. A fugitive. A fugitive is somebody that's running away and doesn't want to be found. And the tensing indicates that this is not just a command, but it's a command that you do over. We're constantly fleeing. There's never a moment in our life we should not be endeavoring to flee youthful lust. Why? Because the second we stop running, what happens? Brethren, 
if a man be what? Overtaken. You flee youthful lust because they're chasing you. They're chasing you. I can tell you right now, in most cases, you ever see me running, I'm probably being chased. But then it says to flee youthful lusts. And again, this doesn't mean that this is something that can be outgrown with age. These are lusts that are prevalent in youth and begin in youth, but that's all, that's all it means. It can start in youth, and it's prevalent in youth, but it doesn't mean it goes away. It just means it's characterized by youth. And then lusts. And when we see the word lust, immediately our mind goes to sexual passion. And that is certainly an application for this. But can I remind you that lust need not be confined to that which is moral versus immoral. A lust is any passion that is contrary to the will of God. You can have a lust for money. You can have a lust for power. You can have a lust for accolades. It's any passion contrary to God's will. So let's put all this together. If we're to flee youthful lusts, we are to flee, we are to be fugitives from passions that begin in and are characterized by youth. So think back to when you were young. If you can. I still can. I'm just old enough to where I'm not, I don't feel young anymore, but I remember being young, and I do still battle some youthful lusts. Now, there's certainly moral considerations, but how about this? How about pride and arrogance? Sometimes there's arrogance to be found in youth, isn't it? Does that necessarily go away? No. Here's one. How about insecurities? Little kids are insecure, aren't they? Especially, I'm I'm sorry, I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings. Teenagers really battle this. Because they're moving into adulthood and they're trying to figure things out and, and it's just, it's a rough road. And if, you, if you're still able to remember your teen years, I wouldn't go back. Uh-uh. No. No. I wouldn't go back. I'm 48 years old and I still battle insecurities. I, I've just, I marvel. I marvel at preachers that I know that they don't seem to at all get rattled by things that just make me fall to pieces. Somebody looks at me weird, what's their problem? Did I forget something? Did I not shake their hand? Did I not? I, why are they mad at me? And before I've descended, this, this was part of my sabbatical, I've descended into this weird place of what have I done? Let me tell you something. The teenagers are killing me right now because they're just being teenagers. They're just being teenagers. I'm talking about all of you. I'm talking about all of you. You're all killing me. You know why? Because you're being teenagers. You're acting like teenagers. But in my insecurities every day, I shouldn't care what teenagers think about anything, should I? But I do. I do. My kids. Man, my dad did not give a flying hoot what I thought about anything. I wish I could get there. But it matters to me what my kids think of me. 
And so I deal with some problem, let's say with Asher. I know it's hard to believe that Asher would ever have a problem, but, but I, I deal with some problem. I can tell you right now, for the next little bit, I'm going to be thinking, did I handle that right? Maybe I should have given him the benefit of the doubt on that. Maybe, and, and he's just thinking, yeah, I got him right where I want him. You know. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. The message is short, so we can spare this. Plus, I need to sit down for a second. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was talking about, <laughs> he stayed out past curfew one night. And he was kind of the, he had the kind of dynamic in his family that, you know how your dad can strike fear in your, your heart? His didn't. It was his mama. And I knew his mama. She struck fear in my heart, too. If I'm lying, I'm dying, y'all. We, we lived in the generation, I'm not saying this was right or wrong, but we lived in the generation that our parents had a, an agreement. If my kid's at your house and needs a whooping, knock yourself out. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I got some from that woman. And she treated me just like I was her own. And I got the ER bills to prove it. No, um. But anyway, he stayed out past curfew. And you know that, you now, and the young people, y'all stop listening to me for a second. When we were kids, sometimes when you stayed out past curfew, you figured, you know what, I'm going to take a beating one way or the other. I might as well enjoy myself. So you don't come in at 10.05 or 11.15. You come in at 3 or 4. You hope your parents have passed out by then, you know, and just, you know, they don't, but you hope that. And he, he did that. And he said he, came, he, he lived in a little brick rancher. I remember that house so well. And he walked in, and it was dark. I mean dark. And he walked in, and from the darkness he heard, well, I guess you can just stay out as long as you want now, huh? And it, was, it wasn't his daddy's voice. It was mama's voice. And he's like, I'm going to die tonight. This is it. This is all over. <laughs> and then she said this. She said, I'm too angry to handle this right. I'm going to let your father deal with it in the morning. And you know what he said? That's when I knew it was going to be all right. Because I know how to manipulate my dad. I can appeal to his sense of adventure, and it's going to be all right. And I knew I would live another day. Now, I'm struggling to remember why this has anything to do with this message. I guess, I guess I'm talking about my insecurities. Um, my parents didn't care what I thought. Um, I, 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 I battle all kinds of things. Why, why do I say that? Because there was a time that I would never want you to know that about me. I'll tell you why. Because I think I pastor a church full of people that have insecurities too. I mean, my soul, y'all, we're all made of the same stuff. And I'm sure yours are different than mine. But uh, we're, all, we're all fighting the same battles, y'all. When, when you get down to the, to the nuts and bolts of it, we're all, we're all going through the same stuff, and I think we'd do better to do it together than separately. You know? But, uh, I mean, but that's a youthful lust. Is that, is that a passion that God's pleased with? No. Does God intend that I be insecure? No. But he intends that I be secure in him. You know? So insecurities... How about this? How about um, the need to always be right? You ever seen a kid argue with you? 
And they're wrong as they can be, but they will not let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that stick around? It sure does. When you get married and you keep fighting, because it's not about who's right anymore, it's about who wins. You know. How about envy? Jealousy is a youthful lust that finds its way into our adulthood, doesn't it? How about wrong ambitions? How about materialism? We, we, we think of kids, and kids get so fired up over things that really don't matter. You know? I've just, there comes a point that you realize you don't have to have the latest Air Jordans. My dad did me a real favor one time. I didn't see it that way then. But I saved up my money. I worked and saved up my own money to buy a pair of Air Jordans. And let me make this very clear. These are not the reproductions that they're selling now. These were the original Air Jordans that Michael Jordan himself was wearing when he was playing. This was the first batch of Air Jordans, the ones that actually meant something. And I saved up my money to the tune of about $300. And I was ready. And we got all our shoes at J.C. Penney. I said, let's go. I got my money. Let's go get my Jordans. And my dad said, uh, I'm not going to let you spend $300 on a pair of shoes. What? It's my money. And my dad reminded me of what I've had to remind my children of. Actually, legally, you don't own a thing. Nothing's yours. It's all ours. We just let you use it. That's not your room. This is our house, and you live in that room. You know. And when, when you're 16, I'm, it's not your car either. It's going to be in my name till you're 18, and that's if you paid for it. You know. And I was hopping mad, y'all. I'd have hopped a little higher if I'd had Jordans, but I was hopping mad. <laughs> but can I tell you, my dad was trying to teach me a lesson about materialism. Now, do I still spend an inordinate amount of money on things that I don't have to? Yeah, I do. That's still a youthful lust that I'm working through. Now, some things you pay for it because you want good quality stuff. I get that. I'm talking about you're paying for a swoosh. You're paying for something that, you know, this celebrity wears or whatever. Silly stuff. How about wrong influences? Do we still battle that as adults? Yeah. How about gullibility? You don't believe so? Just watch social media. If I get one more post on my social media about they couldn't sell this RV, so they're giving it away. They're not giving RVs away, y'all. They're not. They're not. You know what they want? They want your information. That's what they want. So we're not just talking about moral considerations. We're talking about all kinds of passions that are characterized by youth that can still find a a deep root in our lives today. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be fugitives from these things. We're supposed to flee these youthful pitfalls. The best example is Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph is, is there. He's doing his job. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's honoring the Lord and how he's doing it. Everything is as it should be. And Potiphar's wife rolls up in there and suggests that, he and jo- that, that she and Joseph commit immorality. Now, let me make this clear. I think that, that Joseph was almost certainly a good-looking young man. I mean, not as good 
looking as me, but a good-looking young man. I think that, that he was probably uh, well-favored and just had the personality that, that, that just drew people to him. I, I don't think this was a matter of um, you know, anything that was abnormal. And I think that Potiphar's wife was almost certainly, by whatever standard Egypt in that day had, that she was a, 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 an attractive woman. Because Potiphar, being a man of power, he would not have had anything other than a trophy wife. By the way, all wives are trophy wives. Um, but so I think that I think that this was not a matter of Joseph going, Ugh. no, I don't think so at all. I think that everything physically and everything normal about Joseph desired to go in this direction because he was still a man encased in flesh. But something spiritual riled up in him. I can't sin against Potiphar, but more than that, I can't commit this sin against God. So what did he do? Did he stand there and quote Bible to her? No. Did he um, stage a protest? No. He ran away running, screaming out the house, leaves behind his tunic. He is gone. Why? Because the safest way to deal with temptation is to get away from it. Flee. What should I be fleeing? I should be fleeing youthful lusts. Now, that's great. But one of the problems is so many Christians, especially us fundamentalists, we think that fleeing is enough. And we get all hooked up in what we don't do. Well, I'm a good Christian. Why? Because of what I don't wear and where I don't go and what I don't say and what I don't listen to and what I don't watch and who aren't my friends. That is only half of the equation. Because not only is God interested in what we are fleeing, he is interested in what we are following. We cannot be satisfied with what we don't do. The scripture warns against such one-sided efforts. Do you remember in Luke chapter 11, Jesus offers a parable, and he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about what wasn't present in their life. I'm glad I'm not like this publican. See, Look what Jesus says, John, uh, Luke eleven twenty four. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man... He walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. What's he, what's he talking about? He finds a man who is clean, good to look at. Everything looks like it's where it should be, but he's empty. So what happens then goeth he and taketh him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. When you have somebody that is only looking at what they're fleeing, is only looking at what they don't do, and they're just empty and they're hollowed out, what ends up happening is they get so consumed with their religion and their personal accomplishments that there's nothing there that God can use. And they find themselves worse off than they started. 
The hardest person to reach with the gospel is not the down and out bum that's, that's hooked on everything. It's the person that thinks they're pretty good. Victory is a two-pronged endeavor. We, we call it sometimes the doctrine of replacement. Yes, you get rid of things that ought not be there, but you better put good things in their place. Romans 12, 21, be not overcome with evil. Good, but there's another half to that. But overcome evil with good. There's a defense and there's an offense. We're about to have our first basketball game. I would love for these guys to be the number one defensive team in ODAX, but that's only half the game. You also got to hit some shots. You got to have both. How about this? How about Colossians 3, verse 9? Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Good, you should. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Could I, could I use this analogy? If, if I... If I am finished with a job and I am in clothing that is sweaty and dirty and smelly, does that need to come off? Yeah. Am I then ready for society? No. I need to put clean clothes on. Duh. Of course. Then why is it that Christians feel like they can just strip off all the bad stuff in their life, but then they walk out spiritually naked, having put on nothing? So we're to be fleeing, but we're also to be following. That word following means to pursue. You ever wanted something so bad you chased it? I was coming home one day. And uh, we have a dog, he's a beagle, and his name is Otis. We named him Otis because when we got him as a puppy, he could not walk a straight line, and he very much resembled the walking pattern of Otis, the town drunk, and, and Andy Griffith, so we named him Otis. And uh, we have to keep Otis on a lead. It's a long lead, but it's a lead. Because we've learned the hard way, no matter how much we work to train Otis, if he catches a scent of something that interests him, he's gone. I asked the vet, can I train that out of him? He said, nope. They are bred to chase stuff. And so the best you can do is put a shot collar on him and incapacitate him when he, before he gets too far away. That's the best you can do. He cannot, you cannot overcome hundreds of years of breeding. And so we want him to get exercise, and we'll take him for walks, and we'll put him in situations where he can run freely, and we know he won't go but so far. But in our yard, more than once, we've had to go down to Whispering Pines and get him. One lady even tried to claim him. I should have let her. So I'm coming home one day, and if you've ever been to our home, you know that, that our, our front yard's pretty, pretty long, but it's narrow. And I'm coming up the driveway, and I'm not yet come onto our property line, and there's this, this doe 
just running through the front of our yard, just, just bounding through. I'm like, boy, she's on the move. And right behind her is a beagle with a, a line that has broken at some point and just trailing off behind him. And he is, he is pursuing that deer. I don't know what he would do if he got her, but he's pursuing. That is exactly what Paul means. When's the last time we put forth any effort at all to chase after that which is good? I've got a beagle that broke a steel cable. What are we willing to what are we willing to do to chase after that which is good, to pursue after something that pleases God? What are you following tonight? What are you following? Well, Paul tells us what we should be following. He says, first of all, follow righteousness. We're talking about obedience to God's word. This is especially applicable in our dealings with others. You see, certainly our righteousness should be that which pleases God, but it also needs to be something that impacts others around us. How we live and how we act matters. Then he says we're to be following after faith. Now, this does speak to belief and trust in God, but it's, it's more than that. It's a faith-filled life. There's another way we could put this and still be accurate. Faithfulness. One commentator asked this question, and it has really hung with me tonight. How trustworthy does God know me to be? How faithful have I been, and how trustworthy does God know me to be? We're to follow after righteousness, we're to follow after faith, we're to follow after charity. If you'll remember in 1 Corinthians, this is a word that is often translated love. It's from agape. Are there conditions that we place on the love that we have for God and others? Because if there are, we don't have agape love. And then we're to follow after peace. The Greek word that we get this word is where we get our word serenity. Serenity. If there's one thing that's missing for most Christians' lives right now, it's real peace. This is the peace that comes from knowing that the war is already won. It's interesting. John Phillips gives this little paradigm, and I like it. He says this represents the entirety of what a Christian needs. Righteousness is primarily manward. Faith is Godward, charity is outward, and peace is inward. That's everything we need. So the so what, super simple tonight. Two questions. Who or what are you fleeing? Because if we're honest, sometimes we get this thing flipped, don't we? Sometimes we find ourselves a fugitive from the things of God. I've seen it and I've done it. Something's not right in my life and the first thing I do is get away from church. I start fleeing. Not good. What should I be fleeing? Youthful lust. 
And then who or what are you following? Because when it comes down to it, that encapsulizes everything that we need to know about our Christian walk. What we're fleeing, what we're following. Let's stand together.